I'm going to read the entire chapter, although I'll be focusing on just a few of the verses. 1 John chapter 4, hear the word of the Lord. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God, and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with, it, with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love God. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It may be a function of getting older, but I am less and less of a controversialist as I get older. I just don't want to argue. And some of the, the gray hairs here are kind of nodding their head and saying, yes, that's, that's how it gets. But I have to recognize that controversy often can produce a good effect if it's handled well. And what we see in the New Testament and what we see in church history is that oftentimes truth is crystallized when controversy takes place, when there are ideas that are thrown out and, and sincere Christians scratch their heads and say, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound like it's in accordance with what the scripture teaches. And so they gather together sometimes in large councils and they hammer out what the truth is. And you, you see that in, in the New Testament itself. Teachers would arise from the very beginning saying things about God 
or saying things about Jesus that, that just didn't seem to, to check with what, what everybody knew to be the truth. And so the church leaders or the, the, the apostles themselves would, would have to respond. You find Paul responding. You find Peter responding. You find James responding. You find Jude responding. And you find John responding to these, these ideas. And here we find that there was a, a teaching that was going around in the churches that John was responsible for. And it was a teaching about the incarnation incarnation of the Son of God. And what we have here is a correction. Now, I, we're not going to focus so much on the controversy, but what we're going to do is benefit from the, the conclusions or the, the statements that John made about the incarnation in a positive way. And what we find here is there's a message that he repeats in chapter, chapter 4, but verse 9, verse 10, and verse 14. And that is that God sent his son. God sent his son. Sometimes it says God sent his son. Sometimes it says the father sent his son. Verse 9. In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son. Verse 10. God uh, loved us and sent his son. And then verse 14 it says the father has sent his son. There's a word here that's an unusual word. Um, that emphasizes that he sent his unique son. It's translated here in verse 9, his only son. Now, in older translations, like the King James, it's translated only begotten, only begotten. But newer translations have said, well, we may have overloaded that word with some theology that's actually not in that word. It's good theology, but it may be reading into that word a bit too much. Um, if you go back to Psalm 2, in verse 9, we read this. Um, let's see, is it 9? No, it's 2 7. I will tell the decree, the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you, begotten you. And then it goes on to say that he will give to his son the nations as an inheritance. And so uh, it, it looks like maybe that. That word has been overloaded, and we've translated only begotten, made famous because of John 3.16, uh, where we all learned that, and it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. And that, that is good theology, but this word is actually emphasizing the only, the unique son. Unique. It's not saying so much about begotten, not made, like the Nicene Creed says, but it's emphasizing that he is unique. And we find that in John's writing, something very interesting. In Paul's writing, he often says that believers in Jesus are adopted as sons of God, including men and women, have the privilege of firstborn sons along with the firstborn. But in John, he never says that we are sons of God. He uses another word. He says that we are children of God. And he reserves that word son for one and for one only. In John's writing, there is one Son of God. He is the unique. He is the only Son. And God, he's emphasizing here, John says, God sent His Son, His unique, His only Son. And then we find something astounding in verse 15. As, as surprising as that is, but in verse 15, we learn the name of this Son. And it says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, if you're a Christian and have been for a long time, 
If you've grown up with this, you say, tell me something I don't know, that Jesus is the Son of God. But try to take one step back and think about how astounding a statement that is, that this, this human person that was born like all human persons are born and given a kind of common name in his day and had some obscure origins, uh, that, that, that human is the one and only, the unique Son of God. And that's what's being announced here. The Jesus of Nazareth, this, this human, this man, is actually, at the same time, the unique, only Son of God. Well, how can that be? Well, of course, there's a great deal of mystery about this. But verse 2 uh, gets, gets kind of descriptive here, graphic here. It says, verse 2, By this you know the Spirit of God. That is, if you're trying to discern a teaching, from what kind of spirit does this come? From the spirit of Antichrist or from the Spirit of God? He's saying this is how you can know. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So that's the test case. So in, in these days, there were those who were denying that Jesus' flesh was this kind of stuff, this, this very human, carnal, fleshly existence that, that we all have. And, and John is being very, very kind of carnal here in his language, saying Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Now it looks like the idea was God should not get mixed up with that sort of thing. God shouldn't hang out with those sort of people. He, he, can, he can visit, okay, but he shouldn't take on this stuff. That's getting, that's tainting God. That's, that's, that's contaminating God. So we, we got to keep God clean. We can't let him get mixed up with, with people like us, and particularly with our fleshiness, with our carnality. But John doesn't hold back. He says, on the contrary, this is the test doctrine. If you don't believe this, then you are not from God. This is the message that the unique Son of God, the eternal Son of God, has come in human flesh. This is called the incarnation or the enfleshment, enfleshment of the Son of God. Now, this is an absolutely essential teaching for Christians. If, if we do not believe this, then we are not Christians in, in any biblical or historical sense. He says, this is how you know. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus come in the flesh is not from God. And then he says, this is the spirit of Antichrist. So this is not just a, a modification, another version of Christianity. This is, this is opposite. This is anti-Christian teaching. Now, it gets even more surprising than this, that, that, that the Son of God would take on this flesh, human flesh, as one of us. Um, it says in verse 9, that in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, the world, into the cosmos. Now, John, in, in the Gospel of John, and in 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, he, he has these words that he uses frequently. This word he uses frequently, and he has this tendency to use words in a couple of different ways to keep us on our toes. And to leave us questioning, 
Well, what's the meaning here? Um, usually when we hear the word world, we think of earth, and we think of big, and we think of extension. Um, but in addition to that, which is a neutral use of the word, there is a negative use of the word as well. And you find that often in the Gospel of John. Um, world, uh, our word worldly kind of gets at that. It's, it's kind of uh, kind of a sneering sort of thing. It's not just the, the earth that God has created, but it is the earth in rebellion. It is humanity that is turned against God. And that's probably how we should read everybody's favorite verse. We usually think of, for God so loved the world in its extension. And that's true. That's true. But it may be saying, emphasizing, God so loved the world. He loved the world. He loved rebellious humanity. He loved his opponents. He loved those who had made themselves his enemy. He loved those who were hostile to him. And so he sent his only son in human flesh into enemy territory, into a hostile environment. He sent him where? He sent him into the world. The world. And then we find out not only what he did, fact of the incarnation, the enfleshment of the Son of God, but we find out why he did it. And I already read it in verse 9, and it's repeated here many times. He did it because he loves us. This is the most extravagant expression of God's love. Verse 9. In this, you want to know about the love of God? You have a question about the love of God? Here it's answered. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world, the world. And uh, if we're right in reading the word world in its negative sense here, that he, that he sent his son into the world, uh, the rebellious human atmosphere, we, we might um, think about how we react. When we see a mismatched couple, like we see, let's say, a woman whom we think is very beautiful and a guy who's just kind of average. <laughs> or we see, let's say, a guy who's really brilliant and a woman we think is not so, not so sharp. We think, what do they see? Like, what does he see in her or, or what does she see in him? And, and we might be kind of put off by that. And that shows that we think love should be inspired by loveliness by loveliness. And we might even be put off. We might think, ooh, why are they together? Why does he love her? Why does she love him? Because he's not lovely enough. She's not lovely enough for him or for her. But there's also a great admiration that we sense when, for example, when parents adopt a child and they don't adopt the, the, the healthiest, the, the best looking, the, the one of the greatest parentage. They adopt a special needs child. And we say, wow, that's love. Because they're taking on a very difficult task. They're taking on somebody who does not inspire at first glance love. But maybe might even respire from some uh, a level of repulsion. Well, that's the kind of reaction we need to have here. When we think about the, the incarnation. It's God moving towards those that, that were, in some level, repugnant. And, and we might say that, that, that God should love 
it is not surprising. Why? Because it is, it is inherent in God to love. We learn here that, that this is a characteristic of God. God is love. But the surprising thing, the, the, the almost shocking thing, is that God would love the world. It's not surprising that God would love. God is love. But, the, but the, the message here is that he sent his only son into the world. And this is the message of the incarnation. And we see that what he did in coming into the world is he became the propitiation regarding our sins. Verse 10. In this is love. And then he clarifies. Not that we have loved God. Not that we have loved God. And he's not saying that we don't love God. He's assuming that that's proper. Creatures should love their creator. This, but this is, this is not the, 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 the manifestation of God's love. It's not that we have loved God. But it's that he loved us. And once again, sent his son. And then it says to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation. Not a common word, is it? It's not a common word in the English language. But it's, this word is not a common word in the Bible either. It's used here, and it's used in 1 John 2.2. So the only place it shows up, this word, in this form, is in this, this letter, this first letter of John. But it shows up in related forms in only three other places. In Luke chapter 18, where the tax collector and the... Uh, the, uh, the uh, um, the Pharisee, <laughs> blank there, um, and uh, where they're going up to pray, and it's also in Romans 3.25, and it's also in Hebrews 2.17, a related version of this, this word. Now, because this is a difficult word, propitiation, it's not a common word, some translations pick another word. They pick the word expiation, <laughs> which doesn't help much in terms of difficulty, does it? Because that's not a common word either. Um, but, but there is a difference, and it's an important difference, between these two words. They're both true in the case of Jesus. Expiation means the taking away of sins, resulting in the forgiveness of sins. And that is biblical, and that is beautiful. So if, if you want to declare Jesus is the expiation for our sins, I say a hearty, amen, amen. But it's actually even better than that. Because expiation is a legal concept, but propitiation is a personal concept. It's not just that Jesus takes care of our legal debt. Rather, he conciliates God toward us. So it's not just a legal matter, a forensic matter. It is a personal matter because there was a personal offense. And Jesus is the propitiation he is the conciliator. He is the reconciler between us and God. And so he, he connects us to God personally. That's what it means that he propitiates. And if you, you think about the, the Pharisee and the tax collector, they went up to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee started puffing his chest out and talking about all the things he did and all the reasons why God should be impressed with him. And then you recall that the, the tax collector, who in his day was kind of the worst of the worst, traitor to his nation, collecting taxes for the hated Romans and skimming off the top. So kind of the worst of the worst in that society. And, and he stood at a distance and wouldn't even look up 
and his prayer was, be propitious to me, the sinner. If you want to translate it very literally, be propitious to me, the sinner. So what's he saying? He's asking for a personal relationship. He's not just saying, expiate my sins, wipe my sins away. He's saying, I need a relationship. I need for you to be, it's usually translated merciful. I need to experience your mercy, experience your grace, be propitious to me. So what do we have so far? We have God sending his one and only son to, to be a human, taking on our flesh to express his love, to become the propitiation for our sins. And the result of that is in verse 14. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Now we're on to John, aren't we? And we scratch our heads and say, what does he mean by world? And John, I wouldn't put, put it past John because it seems like he does this. Sometimes he means both and. And so we don't have to decide. And so both meanings might be right here. And if we, we can read it both ways. The Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. The extension. The whole thing. The whole earth. Well, actually the word is cosmos. The whole universe. So it, it might it might be that and, and probably is but it's probably also got that tinge to it too he's the savior of whom he's the savior of the world the world he's not the savior of 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 the good folks he's the savior of those who turned away from him he's the savior of the rebels he's the savior of the opponents he's the savior of those who made themselves his enemy he's the savior of the world and there we see the love of God manifest. And so, because the Son has, has taken on our flesh to be the propitiation and is the Savior of the world, what he gives to us is life. Verse 9. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And here, sometimes we think of living as simply the opposite of dying, and that's how John 3.16 says uh, that you won't perish but have life. So it's the opposite of dying. So that's, that's part of it, that, so that you might live and not die, so that you may live and not perish. But it's also active, so that you might live, so that you might have life, so that you might have true life, so that you might have abundant life, so that you might have real life, and that you might have eternal life. And when we think of salvation, what the Savior of the world came to do, in terms of eternal life, we are being very Johnish. Because if you look at others, the Gospels, the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, they announce the kingdom of God. And that's, that's, the, that's the focus. The kingdom of God has come. And so enter the kingdom of God. And then if you look at Paul... He emphasizes doctrines like justification, rightness before God, adoption, being sons of God, sanctification, being cleaned up and, and transformed by God, glorification, sharing in the glory of Jesus. But if you look at John, the Gospel of John, you look at 1 John and in his letters, it's summed up. What's the benefit that the Savior came to bring? It's summed up in life, in life. 
in, in true life. When I first uh, got back here to the States, uh, we live in a condo complex. There aren't any uh, water meters. And so we all share the water and we all pay a portion of it. And so when the pool leaks and drains thousands of gallons of water, uh, we all pay a piece of that. So I'm a little protective of water because it costs me. And when we moved in, there was a woman who lived next to us and her daughter and two children would sometimes come to visit. And when the son came to visit, he was this little boy and he was full of life and he was just kind of into everything. And we don't have that many kids around and, and so he kind of got on the nerves of some of the neighbors, but I took a liking to the kid. He seemed like he needed some attention. And, and so I was there one day and he grabbed the water hose. Yeah, some of you heard this story. It told it some years ago, but he grabbed the water hose and he just turned it on and he started just playing it in the air. And, uh, and I started coming up with ecological and economic reasons to stop him from spraying water into the air. But then as I was, I was about to stop him, he started yelling at the top of his lungs. He started saying, I feel so alive. <laughs> and he kept saying, I feel so alive. As he soaked everything in himself. And, and then I stopped. I wasn't going to stop him from that. And I thought in my head, go for it, kid. <laughs> because that's what we're all trying to do. That's the idea that I have. That's what we all want, isn't it? We want that thing that inspires us to shout at the top of our lungs, I feel so alive. But tragically, we often look for that in the wrong places, don't we? And, and we come up with, with, with bags that, that have holes in the bottom of them, or buckets that leak, that give us a, a jolt for a little while, and then we don't feel alive anymore. And so, if you want true life, if you want real life, if you want abundant life, if you want eternal life, then you need to trust in the unique Son of God who took on flesh to become the propitiation for our sins and to be the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for this announcement once again of your Son, the Savior of all who trust in him, and our source of life. Lord, I pray for all of us that we would have life, true life, abundant life, real life, eternal life, in the Son who became human, to be our propitiation, the propitiation for our sins, and to be our Savior. We pray this in Christ's name.